Hi folks, this is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another episode of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the Kingdom of God. This is episode 85, um, I think, <laughs> of the Jesus Society Podcast. It has been, it has been a little while, and I'll, I'll tell you why it's been a little while. Um, this this spring has been just absolutely crazy. Um, my wife had surgery. Um, uh, she had back surgery, and um, so there was a. Um, she had a. a um, everything's fine. Um, she had a, um, a not ruptured, but a herniated disc in her lower back, and so she was um, in her recovery process, um, which has been about. Uh, about a month now, um, she's she's had a lot of restrictions, so a lot she couldn't do. Um, so I've had to be uh, the chief cook and bottle washer for our family and all that that involves, and that's been fine. But it has kept me very busy, um, and um, I've had to earn a living too. <laughs> so um, I don't, you know, I don't really make a living from from the podcast. Um, so I have a, a few people that support me, uh, and I'm very grateful for the support that they do provide, but, um, you know, I have to, had to make some money too. So between all that, it was just, um, it was quite the uh, overloaded schedule. And I just, I just couldn't do this. I just couldn't do the podcast. Um, um, that was, it was never intended to be a, a permanent thing. Um, I very much enjoy doing this, and I think the Lord wants me to do this. Um, I I did not. Um, I, I still maintained my um, my uh, groups of uh, people that I meet with, and the and the the on the ground ministry um, that I'm involved with here. Um, you know, face to face time with people is always going to take priority over uh over the podcast um as as i think it should um so something had to give and this was the thing that had to give um so i could take care of my wife so i could still do the other things i needed to do um to keep our family afloat and to keep my um my ministry with people uh going but my wife is back to work now and things have uh, things have slowed down a little bit um, in some other areas. So um, I'm back. Um, so anyway, <laughs> that is a movie line. Uh, if you know me, um, and some of you know me um, personally, um, I love movie quotes. I have a large repertoire, and my my favorite friends in this life are people who get all the movie quote references that I tend to habitually drop in my uh, in my conversation. Uh, a lot of people don't, but I have a few precious precious friends who get almost all the movie quotes that I uh, that I throw out. Um, and it's a reciprocal relationship which I which I dearly love. So <laughs> you know who you are out there. Okay, um, today um, hold on, coffee because I always have coffee in the morning. Okay, today we're going to continue. Uh, all these episodes will be... Um, sorry, I just hit the mic. 
um, all these episodes will be um, uh, available back to back. And so from the perspective of people listening to the episodes, they're not going to know that I took, you know, like a month off or whatever it was. Um, so we're just going to kind of pretend in our conversation that um, that we didn't take a break off, uh, didn't take time off. So we're going to continue talking about following Jesus in the 21st century. And this has been, this has been for me an, an attempt um, to try to, to lay out theologically our story as Christians, which I've tried to do kind of several different times on this podcast. I think it's really, really, really important that we know the story we are we are called into. And I think that empowers us, empowers our understanding and empowers our, um, our, our ability to follow Jesus and to make a difference in the world. Okay, so... Um, so we're, we're talking about following Jesus in the 21st century. And, um, today I want to, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and I want to start talking about what it means, uh, the idea of love, uh, and what it means to love like Jesus. And we're going to be kind of camped out on this theme of love for, I think the next three or four episodes. So what, what does it even mean? What does it even mean to love like Jesus? Well, at, at one level, I think it's pretty obvious. You know, Jesus himself said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that you lay down your life for your friends. Well, delightfully, most of us are not asked to do that, at least not literally uh, on a daily basis. Although I'm aware that um, some people in the world and even some people in the U.S. Um, have had to do just that. Uh, in some places in the world, things are a lot more difficult for Christians than they are here in the, in the, in the American West. Um, although my sense is that things are getting worse in that regard in, um, in the American West, uh, probably in the West in general. Um, so most of us are not asked to literally lay down our lives um, for others, although we are certainly asked to do that in principle, um, because that's what Jesus says love is all about. So, um, what I want to do over the next three or four episodes is kind of help us think uh, a little bit about what about the love we see in Jesus, and the way that that love gets worked out um, in a couple of specific areas. Um, uh, and and there's gonna I'm gonna give you some background today to both of these areas. So um, the the specific areas that I want us to think through together are our love for one another in in the Christian community uh, of believers, and also in the way that we show God's love to the wider world to those who are not Christians. Okay, um, those are not the same things. The way we love one another and the way we love the world, they're not exactly the same things. And yet both of those uh, tend to be difficult and challenging. And what I'm going to try to do is offer you a picture of what I think that kind of love looks like. And and that I think it likes, at least makes me want to press into doing that um, with more resolve and purpose. So stick around and let's see if we can start to make some headway on this today. Uh, the, the theologian uh, 
Miroslav Volf, who teaches at Yale University, grew up in uh, Croatia, where his father was a Baptist pastor. In uh, Croatia, as he was growing up, he had experienced persecution under communism. Uh, and and I'll say right now, persecution always seems to come in communism. That's just my bias, and I think that's supported by history. But then, as though that wasn't enough, um, his family endured the civil war between the Croatians and the Serbians and all the, the, the terrible things um, that were going on in the Balkans at that time. And when young Miroslav went off to school in Germany to study under a, another great theologian named Jurgen Moltmann, he was asked this question in, in his time there. Um, the question was, how, how can you, as a Croatian Christian, love your Serbian neighbor? Now, that's a good question. And we could, we could um, substitute some different words in there for Croatian and Serbian and make that just as compelling to any of us. How can you, as a Republican Christian, love your Democrat neighbor? How can you, as, your, um, as a white Christian or black Christian, love your black or white neighbor? How can you, as an American Christian, love your Muslim neighbor, right? There's lots of, lots of categories we could plug into that question. But for Miroslav Volf, the question was, how, how can you, as a Croatian Christian, love your Serbian neighbor? And Miroslav said that he knew at that moment that if he could not answer that question with a convincing argument, convincing at least to him, he had no right to call himself a Christian theologian. Because that's kind of where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? If we can't love, if we can't especially love people who don't love us back, that's where the rubber meets the road as Christians, isn't it? So out of his, out of his wrestling with that question over a number of years, Miroslav Volf wrote one of the great theological books of the 1990s. The book is called Exclusion and Embrace. Now, um, I, I will try to remember to put a link in the show notes for that, but I'll just tell you, if you think you ought to run right out and buy that book and read it, I, I will warn you that it is not an easy read at all. In fact, nothing Miroslav Volf has written, or at least not, nothing of his that I've read, is an easy read. Um, it, he is a deep, deep, deep thinker, and it is a it is a it is a slog. I think it's worth it, at least this book. Um, but it is a it is a slog. So if you're not um, if you're not really committed, <laughs> or if you're not sure that you want to read a deep theological book, then this might not be the one that you start with. Um, but it is an important, poignant book about how how we wrestle. Against you know, there's a there's an assumption that sometimes we see as Christians that um, because we're supposed to love, and we all know we're supposed to love, that that what that means is that well, we just need to let things slide. We need to just um, ignore and overlook hurts and betrayals and injustices. That's that I think for a lot of us that's kind of our default assumption about how this works. 
Um, and Wolf's book, Exclusion and Embraced, really challenges that, uh, that easy assumption. Um, Wolf says, we can't do that. We can't just ignore things like that. Um, and in fact, to do that is not love at all. Um, he says that when bad things happen, love means saying no to those things, calling them out and addressing them as bad, as unjust, as hurtful, sometimes evil things that they, that they often are. That's the exclusion part of his book. Okay. But those things should always be done with a view toward eventual recon- reconciliation and embrace. Okay, so that's the exclusion and the embrace. So we need to, he, he argues very convincingly that we need to see it like that. We need to see, we, we don't just ignore injustice. We, we, we call out injustice and hurt for what it is. But we always do so with a, with a view toward reconciliation and embrace. For me, the most re- remarkable example of that that I have seen recently was back in 2019 in the aftermath of the killing of college student uh, Botham Jean, Jean, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Um, in, in, he, he, was, he was shot and killed in his apartment by an off-duty police officer named Amber Geiger who entered his apartment thinking it was her own. And so she walked in, and there's some there's some questions about you know her condition at the time. But walking into this apartment and finding a man in what she believed to be her apartment, she pulled her gun and shot him. She made a horrible mistake, and a beautiful young Christian soul was killed. But remarkably, at her trial, after she was convicted. The victim's brother, Brant, asked to speak to the judge, and the judge, um, sorry, he asked to speak to the courtroom, and the judge granted his request. And he, he told the court that despite what Geiger took from his family, if she's truly sorry for what she did, then he forgives her. And he wanted the best for her, and that his main desire was not for her to go to jail but for her to give her life to Christ. And then, unbelievably, Brandt asked the judge if he could give her a hug. And equally unbelievably, the judge allowed it. And as the two, as the two shared a tight hug, the only thing that you could hear in that court, courtroom were the sounds of sobbing. Now, that, that is incredibly difficult and, and I'm, I'm not in any way suggesting that it's not, nor am I suggesting that, that's, that, that that ought to just be easy and everybody ought to just do that as a matter of course, or ought to be able to do that. What I am suggesting, though, is for that kind of love to flow from one life to another, especially when there has been such deep, searing loss and the pain and the hurt that follows, for that kind of love to flow outward, it simply has to be given freely. Not, not coerced, not cajoled, not manipulated, uh, not, not guilted, right? 
but it has to be given freely from a place even deeper than the lover's hurt, um, deeper in the lover's heart than, than the pain. And I'd like to suggest that for that kind of thing to happen, it has to spring up out of a life bathed in prayer and soaked itself in love. And it has to spring out of a knowledge that the lover is himself or herself deeply and assuredly loved by God. And that's what I want to talk about going forward. So where does that kind of love come from? And what does it, what does it mean to love like Jesus? How does that actually work? Well, the place to start understanding all of this, I think, is the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 17. And we there's no way on earth that we can read all this, but we're going to be spending some time in John 13 through 17 over the next couple of weeks. Um, it, it leads up to the great prayer of chapter 17, where Jesus prays to the Father for his followers who he's going to send out in the world. And and we find again and again and again in these chapters, chapters 13 through 17, the theme of love. So this is uh, this section of scripture is what we often call the, the farewell discourse. It's, it's, um, it's when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for the last time. He takes his followers uh, into the upper room. And, and John doesn't tell us about the Last Supper. He teams, seems to take it for granted that we know about it. But he talks about the foot washing, where Jesus puts a towel around his waist and kneels down and washes the disciples' feet to their embarrassment. And, and this is not at all something that they expected or really even wanted him to do. But then he puts his clothes on again and he talks to them about love. And he says, now that you've seen what I've done for you, you ought to do the same thing for one another. And, and I need to say this, he's not talking about the literal act of washing feet, okay? I, I know um, some Christians do foot washings in all sorts of ceremonial things and in small groups and in, in church services and whatnot. And that, that's fine, okay? I'm not going to say that's a bad thing as far as it goes. But I do want us to understand Jesus is not really commanding us here to actually wash each other's feet, unless, of course, they need it. Because, you see, Jesus washed their feet because they were dirty and needed washing. There was an immediate need that he met. And it wasn't really anything more complicated than that. Because everybody wore sandals in those days, right? Uh, not the, the closed-toed shoes that we wear with, with socks underneath it. And shuffling along in the dusty Judean countryside every day made for very dirty feet that needed washing every single day. And so Jesus washed their feet to meet a very real need in that day and time and in that culture. But in so doing, he, he, that was normally the role of a, of a servant, okay? And in so doing, Jesus served them. He placed himself in a, in a role very much beneath them in order to meet the very real need that they had. And so when Jesus says, you ought to do the same thing for one another, he's saying, you need to take the role of a servant 
in the lives of other people, even if that requires you to lower yourself in status or stature to do it. And if I can do it, he says, so can you. To, to, to look out for the places of need around you, which you can meet, even if it means doing things that in the world's eyes lower your status or your stature. So, so how do you do that? What is it within a person that allows them to set aside their own status, their own pride, and stoop low and do what needs to be done for others so freely and warmly and without any trace of pretension? Well, we begin to find an answer to that question in John chapters 14 and 15. Excuse me, coffee. Good stuff. So in John chapter 14, there's a, there's a wonderful passage that is kind of simple on, on the surface, but, but the more you probe it, you, you find there's, there's layers of complexity underneath. And, and that happens in John's gospel, right? John is, John is a master poet, and he is, he is maybe more than anybody in the New Testament. Um, John often says more than one thing in a phrase or a sentence, Right? There's always, not always, but there's often layers of meaning underneath, and you really have to, to kind of pay attention and, and, and be aware of, of what John's trying to do to, to see a lot of those. And, and I'll just say we miss a lot of those things. Um, in John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And, and the primary commandment, of course, which he gave us back in John 13, 34, is that you love one another. And then in chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus says, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the loves the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. And there's a lot of, you know, that, that sounds kind of simple on the surface, but the more you think about it, there's there's... There's other stuff going on. And what we find ourselves being drawn into here is what turns out to be a, a, what we might call a Trinitarian theology of love. There's the Father's love for the Son, for the Son and through the Son. There's the Son's love for the Father and for those that the Father has given him. And then throughout this whole chapter, the, the Holy Spirit given to bind Jesus' people into this fellowship of love to, to constitute the church, Jesus' followers, as a Trinitarian people, people shaped jointly by the Father's love, by the Son's self-giving love, and by the love of the Spirit. And all of this, of course, is, is a little bit of a mystery. This is, this is hard to understand stuff, right? I'm not at all going to try to sugarcoat this and tell you that this is this is simple. This is a bit of a mystery. It it always has been and it probably always will be to some degree. You know, God God is if we ever think we've got God totally figured out, like we can map him out on a on a chart or a diagram, we're we're missing something, right? 
but the, but it this is the it's the mystery into which we're baptized and into which we are invited to live every single day and and of course we're probably not going to ultimately understand it certainly not in the in the logical way that we insist on trying to understand everything god is greater than our thoughts right his thoughts are greater than our thoughts his way is greater than our ways that's what the prophet isaiah tells us so it isn't it isn't just that Jesus does this love stuff and it's just our job to copy him. Okay? Now that's that's an okay place to start. Um you know, if you've got no other way to do it, that's you know, better that than nothing. But it's pretty difficult to do it that way. To love like Jesus takes prayer, it takes fasting, it takes and in, in, in intimacy with him where where we're being changed and shaped and and led and formed uh, it takes obedience uh, it takes fellowship it takes spiritual warfare and there's lots and lots of difficulties in the way of actually living that out but anyway in John chapter 15 verses 12 through 17 Jesus repeats what he said in John chapter 13 he says this is this is my command Love one another as I have loved you. And here's the really significant piece of that, I think. In, in verse 13, John 15, 13, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Now, we, we quoted that a minute ago as we started. But then he says this, you're my friends. You're my friends. If you do what I command you, and I'm not calling you servants anymore. I'm calling you friends. That's really important. Because what, what's going on here is that Jesus is inviting his disciples, and that includes us, by the way. Jesus is inviting us into the very circle of love that he shares with the Father and with the Spirit. And so going forward... We're now to think of ourselves, and, and it takes some real mental effort to do this, actually. We are to think of ourselves as the people especially loved by Jesus. The problem is that it's it's just so, so easy, you know, uh, even if we've just sung a, a, a great hymn about God's love, even if we actually know that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's just so easy to walk out into ordinary life and just forget who we really are. A people who have been drawn into the inner circle of Jesus' love. But here's the thing about all this, and this is where we kind of turn the corner. It's only when you know, know, really know, that you are loved like that when you are so secure in that relationship that you can really rest in that knowledge that you're loved by the by the unshakable unbreakable love of God that you are then able to love others in return John says it this way in in 1 John 4:19 we love because he first loved us see you just cannot give what you do not have. You can't. Because if you don't know, really know that you're loved like that, if, if, you, if you don't 
If, if that doesn't form your identity, if it doesn't form the way that you move through your life every day, if you don't know that you're loved like that, you're, you're always nervous about giving yourself away, right? Because there's a cost to that kind of self-giving love. There, there may actually be none of yourself left when you're done. That's what we fear. But if you know that God loves you, if you really know it, that he really loves you with, a, with an unending, bottomless well of love that will not diminish over time, that is not dependent on how well you do in this or that endeavor, then you can love yourself as God loves you. And, and it has to start there. It has to start there. But in that security, then, you are then enabled and empowered to, to, to love others as, you, as you've been loved. And that's, of course, what so much of John's gospel is about, right? That's the that's the key. This love thing is the is the key passage in the first half of the gospel, John 3:16. God so loved the world that he gave, right? And then John's great introduction to this to the second major section of his gospel, the final story that starts in chapter 13. In John chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, the, 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 that, that, word, that phrase that's translated there by the words, to the end, the, the Greek words for that phrase, to the end, is eistelos, eistelos. And it carries the idea of to the uttermost, okay? Jesus loved them to the uttermost. And so what John is telling us, in other words, is that there was nothing that love could do for them that love did not do for them. And John, as he's writing this gospel, John wants that idea that there is that, that, that by the time we start chapter 13, which is the last big section of, of John's gospel, the, the idea that there was nothing that love could do for Jesus' followers that love did not do. John wants that to be the lens through which we read the rest of the story as Jesus' love carries him all the way to the cross to reveal the Father's glory in saving action. And so from chapter 13, we move on to chapter 16. Um, and again, the theme of love comes through in in verses uh, 26 and 27, Jesus says, On that day you will ask in my name, and I'm not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So, it's, so it is just not true at all, and, and we sometimes have this idea that, you know, Jesus loves us. Okay, we can we can wrap our minds around that and we can wrap our head around that. But God the Father, you know, he's not really too sure about us because we're we're just so morally flawed. And and the only thing God really the Father really cares about, we think, is that we're just not good enough. You know, he cares about our performance, our behavior, our moral aptitude. 
And so, you know, Jesus, well, he's our defense attorney and he's the one that stands up for us. And the only thing that is holding back the Father's wrath against us because of our moral failures is Jesus. So we're going to latch ourselves onto Jesus, but we're still just not really sure about this, this Father because, again, we just he's just not really that pleased with us. That's the way we think sometimes about all this. And folks, that is just not true. It's just not true. It is a it is a complete mischaracterization of God the Father. And this verse shows us that Jesus didn't believe that. Jesus says the Father himself loves you. And Jesus is indicating that his followers, his disciples are already constituted as the family who are loved deeply by God. And I want to say this as clear as I can. If you if you are listening to this, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are you have been drawn into that inner circle of God's family and your nature and your name is love. And that takes us into chapter 17, which which ends the same way, same theme. It's not just one verse that bears this out. We see this again and again. John chapter 17, verses 22 through 26. And remember, this is a prayer. By the time we get to chapter 17, Jesus is praying. He is praying to the Father, the Father who just said he loves you. And the big emphasis in verses 20 through 22 of chapter 17 is unity. And, and I'd go farther to say that he, Jesus is praying for union, for intimacy. Jesus is praying that, that they, that, that we may be one as we are one. In other words, Jesus says, I, I'm praying that they, his followers, may be one just as we, the Father, Son, and Spirit, are one. In verse 23, he says that, that the unity and intimacy that he's praying for has a purpose so that the world may know that you've sent me and that you have loved them as you have loved me. Okay, so, so unity testifies to the love of God for the world. Um, Jesus wants the world to know that God loves us in the same way that he loved Jesus, who he sent. And then in verse 24 of chapter 17, Jesus talks about the glory God gave him because you loved me from the world's foundation. And what's what's remarkable about this, and I, I, did, a, I did an episode about this early, early on in the Jesus uh, Society podcast, Jesus gives us here one of the only examples in, in all of Scripture into the common life of Father, Son, and Spirit before creation. And the one word that Jesus chooses to characterize the life in the Trinity before creation is the word love. And then in verse 26, he says that he has made the Father's name known so that the loved you have loved me with may be with them, sorry, may be in them, and I may be in them. So let me try to bring all this together. We're given a glimpse here, just, just a glimpse 
of the common life of the Father and Son and Spirit. He doesn't mention the Spirit here, but the Spirit's there. Before the act of creation, before the cosmos existed, there existed a a family of perfect love which the Father and the Son and the Spirit shared. And of course, God's family is a family of love because God is love, as John tells us in 1 John 4, 8. God is love, right? So shortly before Jesus gives his life for the world, the thing that is most on his heart, the thing that he prays again and again, is that his followers be absorbed into this beautiful, holy community of perfect love and fellowship so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Again, as followers of Jesus, we're being drawn in to the the inner circle, constituted as the people who are loved by God the Father and are drawn into this very same family of love that existed among Father, Son, and Spirit before the foundation of the world. This is extraordinary, folks. And it's something we don't talk nearly enough about. Jesus loves you. And so does the Father. He loves you with an everlasting, unshakable bond of love secured by our allegiance to Jesus. And God's love is not fickle. It is not finicky. It is not codependent. It looks very much unlike a lot of the the flawed, imperfect, broken, selfish kinds of love that we experience so often in our world. Remember what Paul says in the last verse of Romans 8, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it, but I'm, I want to paraphrase it because I don't want us, I don't want the familiarity of the language to, to cause us to, to just blow by this and think, well, I've heard all that before, okay? So I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit. The last several verses of Romans chapter 8, Paul says, if God is for us, who is against us? After all, if God didn't even spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how then will he not freely give all things to us? So who on earth can bring a charge against God's chosen ones? It's, God's, it's God himself who declares them to be in the right. So who's going to condemn? It is the Messiah, Jesus, who has died or, or rather has been raised, who is at God's right hand and who also prays on our behalf. So who again shall separate us from the Messiah's love? Suffering? Hardship? Persecution or famine? Nakedness or danger or sword? No! In all these things, we are completely victorious through the one who loved us. And I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor the present, nor the future nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in King Jesus our Lord. You see, folks, God's love is, is pure. It is warm. It is inviting. 
It is self-giving. It is unbreakable. It is relentless, unyielding, and unending. And that is true whether you understand it or not. But wouldn't it be far better to understand it so that we can enjoy it? To learn to live life in that reality every single day. To be able to rest in the security and abundance of God's love for us. Again, we can't give what we don't have. And the unshakable, winsome, warm love of God within us is the thing that will empower and and fuel our ability to love others. And that's the very thing God wants to do. He doesn't just want to love us. He wants his love to extend to every family, tribe, tongue, nation, and people on this planet. That, folks, is the kingdom of God. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. Uh, As always, we'd appreciate it if you'd tell others about the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please uh, subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, blah, 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 wherever you go to get your podcast. There's more podcast platforms today than I can count, and I don't even know all the platforms that uh, where you can find this. Um, those are just the big ones that I know here in America. Um, check out our website, thejesussociety.com. Um, you can find episodes of the Jesus Society podcast on, on YouTube and Odyssey, and there's links for that in the show notes. If you search for the Jesus Society podcast on either platform, uh, you'll find us. If you would like to support the show and our related related ministry, click on the support TJS link uh, on the on the Jesus Society website uh, to find out how to do that. Thank you for listening, and remember, you are greatly loved.